0: Well, uh, we have, uh, th- my name's Mike Whitney, as you can see on there, and uh, we have some, uh, a special uh, one here. So Stephen came in at one o'clock this morning, driving in from uh, Hillsdale, where he graduated from last week. We were all out there, a bunch of us were out there with him, along with uh, Hope Langworthy, who from our church uh, also graduated, so the Langworthys were out there as well with us. So, and we have babies here. So Marcy has a baby there. What's the name, Marcy? Ava. Ava. So, yes, we love babies. Uh, And the Limica's baby back there, we just love babies. (laughs) So it's great to have you all here today. Well, the sermon I have titled for today is The Spiritual Work of Mission. And uh, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19. But I'm going to start off with a question for you. A question kind of a scientific question, actually, and maybe even a spiritual one. The question is this. Is there more to reality than what we can see? Is there more to reality than what we can see? Yes. It's a scientific truth that there actually is more to reality than we can see. There are things that are too small to see with the naked eye, like subatomic particles, it's my nuclear engineering background here. <laughs> there are some things that are too small to even see with the best scientific ev- uh, equipment available. And there are things too large and far away, that, uh, like the universe itself, that's, that are hard to fully comprehend or to even see if it's too far away. There's also things like personal emotions, which uh, you can't always see on someone's face Unless you're playing poker with me. um, And that's one of the reasons I don't play poker. Because you can see my cards through my face. Look what I got. (laughs) So there's emotions that you can't always see. Um, The electromagnetic spectrum kind of got my attention. uh, From uh, last week, uh, I'm stealing this from Stephen's pastor from last week. The electromagnetic spectrum is an example of the visible and invisible realities. So here is actually an illustration of the electromagnetic spectrum um, where you can see uh, increasing wavelength from the left side to the right side. But right in the middle is the part that's visible. Right in the middle is the part that's visible. You can see by looking at the upper graph how narrow a band that is. It's actually a very narrow band of the entire electromagnetic spectrum that's actually visible. The rest of it is real, it's just not visible to us. We were talking about it this morning in the youth class. There's radio waves, we communicate with some of those things that are real. We cook our food, maybe you even did it this morning, with some of that part that's real that you can't see. Uh, We use it in medical applications. And there are some of those things that you can't see that could even kill you, like gamma rays. <laughs> they could even kill you. So they're very real, you just can't see them. It's also true in a spiritual sense. There is a spiritual realm behind the physical world that is just as real. And it influences people and the things in this world that's a par- in a powerful way. I want to talk about that today, not in a creepy kind of awkward way, but in just a biblical way. The spiritual realm is sometimes described in the scriptures as the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And they are at play in the midst of our lives, and they're at play in the great commission work that Jesus called us to do, actually. As you know, Jonah and I are walking through the book of Acts this year. Uh, and we're looking at the intersecting letters uh, in, in what we're calling the Great Commission series. The Great Commission is what Jesus left his followers with after his resurrection, when he charged them to preach the gospel to all creation, to make disciples of all nations, and to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Just looking at that last one, Acts 1-8, in its full full. Uh, Uh, context here, Uh, the book of Acts in the very first chapter, eight verses in, leaves this charge. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This charge has two parts. I have them underlined there has two parts. The last part of this charge, this commission, is related to the mission and tells us what we are to be. The, the other two great commissions tell us what we're to do, the other two versions. This one tells us what we are to be. We are to be his witnesses, or the Greek word is martous, related to the word martyr, actually. We are to be his martous, his witnesses, so that's, that part is related to what we are to be. But look at the first part. The first part of the charge tells us how we are to be empowered to be as witnesses, namely through the Holy Spirit. This, com, this version of the Great Commission gives us, tells, talks about the power to do the mission. We often get so excited especially in the circles that I run around in, in the navigators, in the evangelical circles, we get so excited about being his witnesses to the ends of the earth that we forget where the power comes from to be that way. We forget that. In the midst of the ministry, we sometimes forget that what we're actually dealing with as we witness to the world and as we make disciples, that what we're dealing with is primarily the spiritual realm. What we're dealing with in this Christian life, when you become a Christian, what you're dealing with, and in this ministry, what you're dealing with are the forces of light and the forces of darkness, much like the visible and invisible parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. They're very real. These forces can only be successfully engaged in a spiritual way with the spiritual armor of God. We will see these forces at play as we look through the story of Acts 19. So what I want to do is I want to read a portion of it, the first half of it. Then we'll walk through the story, and I'll talk about the second half a little bit. I want to point out how the spiritual realm is described here. My hope in this sermon is to describe the spiritual work of the Great Commission and... How to engage with the work as we walk with God and employ the spiritual armor He's provided. OK, so let's read a passage from Acts 19. You can open up your pew Bibles. I'm going to get one. Um, in uh, page 9:28 is where we'll be looking at um, in um, so let me do that. Acts 19. So page 928. Acts 19. Here we go. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. By Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them Jesus I know, Paul I recognized, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, and they fled out of the house naked and wounded. wounded. And this became known to all the residents at Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believed, who now believed were, came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and, it, and found it came to 50,000 pieces Of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So let me pray before we get started. (laughs) Lord God, we do pray that you would open up our eyes, help us to understand this difficult passage, this spiritual realm which seems so. different to us. Lord, help us to see with your eyes. And God, as we engage here, help us to understand the importance of connecting with you, being walking by your Spirit, and employing the spiritual resources that you've given us to engage in life and ministry. God, we just thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 19 opens up with... Paul arriving in Ephesus and it describes this other guy Apollos that Jonah talked about last week. He's left Ephesus and he's gone to Corinth and the first thing it says that when Paul arrives in Ephesus is he found some disciples, about 12 of them, and he asked them a question. It's an interesting question. He said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, it doesn't say why he asked him that question. Was it something he saw in their lives? Something he saw or heard in their testimony that caused him to ask the question? I don't know. But he recognized that that they believed there was just something in their lives that appeared to be lacking the Spirit's presence. It's interesting that he asked him that question. One commentator said this, the apostle doesn't question the reality of their faith. He probably just observed something perhaps like legalism in them, which raised the question. Something raised the question, and so he asked it. Well, they answered. Their answer really struck me this week. (laughs) That's why I read it. They answered that they had not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Almost as if to say, wait. Wait, wait, there's a Holy Spirit? (laughs) There's a Holy Spirit? Well, actually, I don't know whether they had actually never heard that the Holy Spirit existed or whether they had just never heard that someone could receive him. Maybe that's what it was, that they had just never heard that someone could receive him. So Paul went on to ask them about their baptism. And when they answered, he realized that they'd only received the bat- baptism of John, which was similar to what Apollos said. Perhaps they were discipled by Apollos, maybe. I don't know. So he told them that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance that pointed somewhere. It pointed to Jesus, to the Savior, and they were to believe in Jesus. So he kind of completed what they believed. It says, it's very interesting how it's worded. I won't go into it, but it says, On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and received the Holy Spirit by the laying on of Paul's hands. It's an interesting part of the story of Ephesus. And like I said, but the part that stands out to me is the idea that they were trying to live out their faith without the power and the reality of the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of when we try to live out our faith without the power of the Holy Spirit, or when we try to minister to make disciples of Christ as though we can do it on our own. It's like we're saying, wait, there's a Holy Spirit? Yes, he's the one that gives us the power to do it. He's the one who gives us the power to minister, to make disciples, to live out this Christian life, is the Holy Spirit. It's kind of important. Francis Chan wrote a book about it. It's called The Forgotten God. It's an interesting book. Well, the idea of doing the ministry of serving God, sharing the gospel, growing in Christ, making disciples, the idea of doing that without the power of the Holy Spirit and without understanding the reality of the spiritual dimension that's involved, frankly, it's ludicrous and presumptuous to think that it's all just stuff that we do and to not be aware of this spiritual realm that is just as real like the electromagnetic spectrum. It's like acting as though the invisible portions of the electromagnetic spectrum don't exist because we can't see it. The reality is is that some of that spectrum can kill you. (laughs) Well, the issue, this issue of the unseen realities are further illustrated in the next part of this story. The next part of the story, so stay tuned here. It says that Paul was engaged in preaching the gospel, the word of the Lord. He was reasoning and persuading folks about the kingdom of God, both Jews and Greeks first with the Jews in the synagogues for three months in Ephesus, then for two years with the Greeks in, in what's called the Hall of Tyrannus. And I thought you guys who are students, um, especially in high school, might be interested in knowing uh, what, the, what the Hall of Tyrannus means. It, it means the school of the tyrant, which is an interesting way to think about school, don't you think? Anyway, the Hall of Tyrannus. Well, in doing the reasoning and persuading, he saw the spiritual dimension played out uh, in that some became disciples of Christ. Some received the word of God and believed it, which is a spiritual thing. And some rejected the faith and even maligned it. All the while, all the while, this was going on for these two years and three months, maybe more. All the while, God was doing extraordinary miracles. Extraordinary miracles through Paul. Even, I know this is kind of wild, this is one of the wildest places in the book of Acts, even through the clothing material that touched his skin. And it was this element that was likely misinterpreted by some who thought they could appropriate the name of Jesus and the name of Paul to take authority over the spiritual realm without a proper connection. Like Jonah said, this first thing, the first thing of having a relationship with Jesus, the, the folks that we're going to talk about next didn't have this proper connection to Jesus, and yet they were trying to take authority over the spiritual realm. They misunderstood the spiritual realm even though they were trying to take authority over it. Okay, you see, there were, there were these itinerant Jewish, Jewish exorcists, namely seven sons of a man named Siba, who were invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they did it this way They said, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Isn't that interesting? I adjure you to, to do what I'm about to say by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. Well, they were unpleasantly surprised one day when the evil spirit answered them back. And he said, Jesus I know. And Paul I recognized. But who the heck are you? (laughs) I threw the heck in. But who are you? And the man with the evil spirit beat them up, and they ran away naked and wounded. Wow! They were surprised. You cannot just appropriate the name of Jesus and make this work for you without having a connection to him. Okay. So that, that's the second thing that happens. Finally, we get to the part that I didn't read because it's very, very long. The, the riot at Ephesus at the end of chapter 19. That riot was played out in the context of idolatry, in the spiritual forces of darkness against the spiritual forces of light. It began when a silversmith silversmith named Demetrius realized that Paul's preaching of Jesus was going to negatively impact his economy, his personal economy, his idol-making business. So he gathered the workmen in similar trades, and he stirred them up. Stirred them up against the ministry of the gospel of Jesus, which was referred to as the way. So when you see the way in Acts, it's talking about the ministry of the gospel of Jesus. And as I studied what Demetrius and his colleagues did, oh my, when I studied what Demetrius and his colleagues did, I realized it was a classic case. It was classic of instigating a protest that turns into a riot that has all the elements of what we see sometimes played out today in political arenas, both on the right and the left side. It surrounds a common cause, a sense of urgent outrage, a rally to action. That's what was going on in here. And it's a classic case of what happens sometime today. It says that they were enraged. Once, once Demetrius shared these things, they were enraged and began crying out Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Artemis was there. Their god, like Diana, I think, is the other other name for it. In Ephesus, there's this huge um, temple to to, uh, Artemis, larger than the Parthenon. I've been to the Parthenon. The temple in Ephesus is, I think, four times larger than the temple in the Parthenon. It's huge. This is a big deal. Ephesus was the third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome's first. Ephesus is third or fourth. So, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It says that this city, which is like, I think Jonah said, four times the size of Portland, the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging two of Paul's two unlucky guys, of Paul's traveling companions with them. It was a riot. It was mob rule. Have you ever been... You don't have to answer. This is completely uh, rhetorical. But have you ever been in a riot or part of a mob? I have. I have. One night up at the University of Maine, when I was a student there, there was a large group of students. This is back in the uh, late 70s. There was a large group of students that gathered, and they were moving from dorm to dorm. And it was a noisy group that grew large rather quickly. It was impossible not to notice them because there was this kind of roar going on on campus and you could be like, what's going on? Yet none of us knew what was actually happening. If you ran, like I did, to find out what was going on, there really was no one in charge to ask (laughs) because it was a mob. There was nobody in charge of this. It was just this amoeba moving across campus. To this day, I don't know why they gathered. But it was beginning to get a little bit like off. And so I'm like, I'm out of here. It was a mob. Verse 32, which we didn't read, is a perfect description of a mob. It says, now some cried out one thing, some another. Another. For the assembly was in confusion. And listen to this part. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Now this is not a church meeting that I want to run. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's one of the funniest verses in the Bible. I mean, if you, if you describe kind of a group meeting, yeah, this is the, nobody ever starts their meeting with this verse. Most of them did not know why they had come together. It was a mob, and bad things happen in a mob. Paul wasn't there. He wasn't in the theater. He wanted to go in, but the disciples urged him not to venture into the theater. The local believers understood what would have happened if Paul went in there. Probably better than Paul did. They knew how big the theater was. And even though Paul probably understood the spiritual dimension that was happening behind the scenes there, Better than the local believers? It appears that Paul respected their local knowledge, which was reinforced by these Asiarchs, which were, royal, which were officials that were friends of Paul. And Paul didn't go in. Thank God. Like I said, the crowd in there was acting like a mob. They were croaking out this cheer, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, croaking it out in a way that was meant to drown out all other voices. It was mindless, it was repetitive and it was overwhelming. And the people were poured together in a confusing way. And there, the, justice was certainly not going to be served that day in that environment. All manner of injustice and atrocities is likely to happen when you have that kind of emotion going on. Someone needed to get it under control before they did something really stupid. And God used, not Paul, not one of the believers, God used the town clerk to quiet them down and dismiss them. Isn't that wild? Town clerk. Okay. So why did I say that this riot was played out in the context of the spiritual forces of darkness against the spiritual forces of light? Why did I even say that? Besides the fact that it goes along with my theme? Well, the scene had idolatry, idolatry written all over it. That's what they were chanting. Great is Artemis. It had idolatry written all over it. And that in opposition to the true living God that Paul was preaching. So there's people in there thinking, where where do I believe? Is it Paul or is it Artemis? Is everything I've known? At times like this, I wish that the Lord would roll back the curtain so we could visibly see the forces in battle. I think we'd be shocked to see what's actually going on in the heavenly realms behind the scenes. It reminds me, I don't know if some of you remember these books in the 80s by Frank Peretti, where he, and some of them were kind of hard to read <laughs> because they were very graphic, but what he did is he illustrated the spiritual realm behind everyday Christian activities. And you're like, we're going to a prayer meeting, right? Like we had a couple prayer meetings here this morning. There's spiritual stuff happening in the heavens when you're praying. We find that out from the book of Daniel. Okay, well, this brings me back to the theme of this sermon the spiritual work of the mission. The spiritual work of the mission. As I marinated on this story for the last few weeks, the Lord clearly pointed me to this theme. This is the point, Mike. This is the point. I said, okay, Lord. What do I say about it? What what do you want us to do about it? And he pointed me to some of Paul's letters. He said, well, what did Paul say about it, Mike? (laughs) Okay. Oh, look. Well, um, let me just show this slide. So Paul wrote three letters that are related to Ephesus in his visit there. Three letters. So I know you really can't see this. If you want to see it better, I've, I've sent it out in my notes to the early bird Bible study. By the way, I send out my notes for the sermon, uh, and, and Jonah and I send out notes Monday before. So if you look at that, if you click on the, uh, the here word, you can actually get a clue as to where we're going for the next Sunday. And this is what we talk about in the early bird Bible study at 6 a.m. on Wednesday morning, uh, which is an early thing. Well, uh, these, these three letters that I have highlighted are related to Ephesus. The first was a letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Do you know where he wrote that? And, and I'll just say one more thing about this chart. This is a perspective. I wouldn't teach this as doctrine, but as people have looked at this, and as I re-looked at like, the letter to Corinthians, I poured over Corinthians first and second in Ephesus, in Ephesians, just so that I could have some recent knowledge on what's the historical concept con- context, it, it appeared to me that this is exactly right. But it's arguable, so take a look at it. The first was a letter to the Corinthians, which he probably wrote from Ephesus during his, first two, during his two-year visit. And he probably wrote it before the riot. And there's a reason I, I say that. As I read the letter... He tells the Corinthians, I'm going to send Timothy to you. Well, you can tell when you read that part of Acts 19 when he sends Timothy off. And so he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. So you can actually tell, and that was before the riot. So my best guess is that 1 Corinthians was written in Ephesus before the riot. But 2 Corinthians was after he left Ephesus and he's on his way through Macedonia and, uh, and, and, and goes through Troas in second, the second chapter of Second Corinthians. It talks about him being in Troas. And, and anyway, you can go through this, the historical context. He's on his way through Macedonia, and he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church on his way there. That's after the riot. So you can begin to get a perspective of, okay, if that's what happened, Lord, What did Paul say about the spiritual realm in those letters? That would be interesting to me on this topic. So I looked at it. I poured over those two letters. And then, six years later, I think six years later, maybe four, he's sitting in a prison near Rome. And he writes a letter to the Ephesians. To the Ephesians. And he sends it by the hands of of, I think, Tychicus and Onesimus, who's a slave. He also sends those four letters back at that same time. That's the historical concept of these letters that are going on right in this story. And so, as I asked the Lord, I said, what should I say? He said, well, read those letters, Mike, and you might find something. I'm like, okay. So I poured through the letters. There's a lot there. And you can see in my notes that I sent out for the early bird, lots of material on the spiritual realm. Paul talks about the spiritual realm here a lot in those letters. A lot, probably a lot in all of his letters. But in the Ephesians, he urged the believers, at the very end of the letter, he urged the Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God. Does it now put that into perspective a little bit of what they're dealing with? That when he wrote them to put on the whole armor of God, it was in the context of this experience that they had in Acts 19. So that they would be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and to stand firm. You remember what he said. He said in verse 10, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's what uh, John Schwanda read for us this morning. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of dark, the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And in all circumstances, all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of doubt that Satan shoots at you and other people. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and supplications. I won't go on. So he said, put on the belt of truth. Make truth something that encircles your life. Make truth something that encircles your life like a belt. And put on the breastplate of righteousness. So that your heart might be protected. Protected by the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of readiness of the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings the gospel, the good news. Put on the shoes because it's the feet that matter when it comes to preaching the gospel, not the mouth. Hmm. And take up the shield of faith, like I said, so that you may be able to extinguish the darts of doubt. The helmet of salvation protects your head from a mortal wound so that you could be saved. The helmet of salvation. The sword of the Spirit, but the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the sword of the Spirit that we're to take up. It's living, it's active. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. You want to be prepared for the spiritual realm, get in the Word. Pick up the sword and wield it. And finally, the practice of persevering prayer. I prayed this morning with uh, Millie and Tony. At the end of the time, I said, you know, this is the use of spiritual uh, instruments. It's resources. We think we can do this work without that. And we can't, we can't. This is a spiritual realm we're dealing with. When we're out there living our our, our faith in Christ, we're, there's attacks going on. There's there's temptations going on all the time, and we need to approach these things spiritually. To engage without connection of with God with God, and the protection of the spiritual armor, will leave us naked. Beaten and defeated like those seven sons. <laughs> That's what will happen. Sorry, I don't mean to speak too scarily, but this, these are just truths that came out of this scripture this week as I looked at this like, oh my, we need to talk about the, spiritual, the, the, the armor of God. We need to use this. Remember that the Christian life and the work of ministry, the Christian life and the work of ministry is more than just doing church together. It's more than that. And it's more than just executing a ministry plan. That's what I do in my circles. We come up with ministry plans. The work that we're called to do is more than executing a ministry plan. We live and we minister in the physical and the spiritual realm that's just as real as the electromagnetic spectrum, both visible and invisible. The spiritual realm is just as real as the physical realm. Let us live and minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why he came. And let us put on and learn to use the armor of God. This is the spiritual life and work that we are engaged in. May God open our eyes to see this spiritual work and be empowered by his holy presence. Amen? Amen. Okay, let me pray. Lord God, we cannot live this life or do the work that you've given us to do in our own strength. We cannot. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to be with us, your presence. May we walk in the Spirit. May we be empowered by your presence. And may we learn to put on and use the armor that you've provided us. Do mighty things before us in our day as we walk with you and make disciples of Christ in the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.